First part is Daniel, starting chapter 2, verse 46, going all the way to the end of chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked the advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and the houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And the second reading is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people setting, selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder what you think of when, when you, you hear Daniel 3. I, I suspect we've all heard it before. We've... Um, heard it preached on several times, you know. You have this ridiculously large statue set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. He demands everyone uh, worships to it when a ridiculous number of, of people play a ridiculous number of instruments. And a ridiculous number of people do worship it. And then there's the awkward part. There's these three guys standing, presumably on a plane of people, prostrate on the floor, and they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs going, yeah, how long is it going to be before someone notices that we're still standing up here, guys? But a lot of the times that we look at Daniel 3, we look at those three, the three Hebrews, 
who are standing there in the middle of that plain, openly defying Nebuchadnezzar. But I want to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective this morning. Because I think there's one person that we forget often when we look at this passage, and that's Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so, actually, in a few weeks' time, when we get to Daniel 6, Daniel himself does many of the same things that the three do here, only in a lot more detail. And so I suspect Pete will be preaching on that. But Nebuchadnezzar is nowhere to be found there. But he's here in this passage this morning. So let's have a look at King Neb. I'm going to call him Neb for short because my voice is going again. And I'm going to call him the three because that list of names. And let's just go for music. (laughs) Because zithers, harps, lyres, I can't even say it right now. But what about Neb? I think the end of chapter 2 gives us a good picture. And the picture is one that a friend of mine, an Irish friend of mine at the church we used to go to, used to characterise like this. Yes, 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 no. It's that sort of picture of, of what happens when everything seems to be going right and then stumbles at the last hurdle. If you're a sports fan... Now, this is probably going to crash in a heap at this point because I'm not an AFL fan. But the Patriots and the Falcons last year in the Super Bowl. Yep, blank faces. <laughs> 20 you don't need to know the, the details. You just need to know the score. 28-3, end of the third quarter. It all comes crashing in a heap. At Ten minutes later, the Falcons have lost the Super Bowl. Yes, 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 yes. No. I think we we all recognise that regularly. We see it happen all the time. And so here, Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 2, gets confronted with this vision. It's a terrifying vision. He gets scared out of his wits. He gets all of his astrologers in. He gets everyone around, and they can't tell him what what the vision is, let alone what the interpretation is. Daniel comes along, tells him what the vision is and the interpretation, and still that's kind of scary. Your kingdom will be overthrown. You are that head of gold... P.S. reminder, there are all these kingdoms that are coming after you and there's going to be a stone which is going to knock them all down. And if you're King Neb, I think you'd be relatively afraid. So what does Neb do? What does he do in this circumstance? Well, he gets out his worshipping clothes and he puts them on Daniel. Yes, 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 yes. Worship God, worship God. Oh, wait, Daniel's here. Let's worship him instead. So uh, 2 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and order and offering and incense be presented to him. No. That's the no part. But what does he do after this as well? Where we get to our passage here this morning. How, how does King Neb continue to respond to this vision that he's had of a massive statue of him at the top? and everything else coming afterwards. Well, he continues with the no bit. King Neb made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and sets it up on a plane. He responds to the challenging of the failings of his own gods by setting up another one. Kind of seems a bit silly, doesn't it? It reminds me, actually, of uh, when my, my son Caleb was little, he was playing with a small lion, a little stuffed toy. 
and he was, you know, crawling around the house going, rah, rah. It's all well and good when that lion is a six centimeter long stuffed toy. It's another thing when that lion, if that lion were to come to life, if that lion were not a six centimeter long stuffed toy and instead it was a prowling, dangerous beast. It's a different sort of image. But while that lion is a stuffed toy, it's controllable, it's easy. You can put it in a box, you can put it back in the box in th at the end of the day and you don't have to worry about it. Now, King Neb's statue is a bit big to put back in a box, but it's the same thing going on. He's seen something that terrifies him, so he wants to set up something that he can control. He sets up a toy. Why does he set up a toy? Well, I trust it's actually something that's more, far more universal than just what King Neb does. But it's something that we all do when we are confronted. Because ultimately we're built to worship. We're built to worship something. Both Christians and non-Christians alike are built to worship. All of humanity is built to worship. Now, I think we look at King Neb and go, yes, that's really easy to see, you know. He, he has this idol and literally sets up another idol. Uh, he worships physical things, statues set up on planes, statues in temples. And I think a lot of the time we, we look at the world around us and we go, yeah, that's what people out there do. They do that all the time. There was, there was a, back in the 90s, and this is showing my age now, um, and probably my musical taste. Back in the 90s, there was a, a Britpop band called Faithless. Um, and they came out with a song which was a really good cultural analysis of uh, the 90s um, music scene. And it included this line, Who's that false idol I see you kissing? Money, success, untold wealth, good health. And the song goes on, and truly it rejects them all. But what is the solution that it gives? Well... All you have to do is you just have to love yourself. Reasoning? Well, we're in the dance hall here, and God, well, God is the DJ. You just have to love yourself. We've taken one thing and set up another. But I think Christians, we do that as well. We take God, who is confronting and fearsome and all-powerful, and we go... I want to worship that God, but I'd much prefer if he was in this little box in the corner. We set up our own little idols. We have our own justifications for who we want to worship. Our hearts are fickle. We have to worship something. But we want to worship the thing that's controllable, the thing that is safe, that we can put away in the box at the end of the day. But there's a problem. There's a big problem in this. I call it the Nokia snake problem. And again, I'm showing my age. The old Nokia snake that you used to play with on, on, on the really early phones consumed many, many hours of my, of my childhood. You, you're controlling a little snake around this tiny little screen, eating up these little dots. And each dot you eat, the snake gets a little bit longer. And eventually, if you're good enough at it, and you've got to be really good at this, you can get the snake to, co to cover pretty much the entirety of the screen. And because those dots are only placed in empty space, you can keep eating the dots. This is really good. My snake is getting longer and longer and longer. And then you get to the point where your snake covers the, almost the entire screen except for one little square. 
and you're in a problem. You know that as soon as you get to that square, the computer's going to put a dot, a little bit of food in it, and your snake's going to get longer. The only problem is there's no more room for your snake to grow. The problem with that is that when you eat yourself in snake, you die. Game over. You're, you've stu stuck yourself between a rock and a hard place. To win the game, you have to eat that piece of, of food. But to win the game, you're instantly going to lose it. You get so good at snake that you just have to start a new one. You eat, the, you eat your tail and suddenly the screen goes blank and you're this little snake all over again. It's the same for us. We worship something and we build it up bigger and bigger and bigger, 60, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and then it falls over. And what do we do? Gee, that worked so well last time, I better build a new one. So Neb sets up an idol, and I take it they he's setting it up to control his terrifying vision of God. He's been confronted, he's been challenged. He's got really good at worshipping idols. So what does he do when he's um, confronted and challenged? Well, he sets up a new one. And he desires, he wants to control God and to control his people by demanding that it be worshipped. The herald loudly proclaims, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the music, you are to fall down and worship the image of gold. Whoever doesn't fall down is going to be burnt. Fairly simple. What, but what about for us? Where do we take this? I've already said that I think we're just as good at constructing idols as everyone else. How do we identify them in our lives? Well, I trust that it's actually fairly easy to do that. It's where we worship, where we go to for our control. Shopping centres are one of them. Heck, we even named an entire TV show based off the advertising principle, which is to make people get lost in their idolatry at a shopping centre. It's called the Gruen Transfer. You walk into a shopping centre and suddenly you can't figure out what you're doing. Where am, why am I even here? Oh, well, I better go buy something. I'm at a shopping centre. It's idolatry writ large. But that's easy. That's out there. I've said Christians create them just as much. So let me give you an example of that. I grew up um, from an academic family. My father did his uh, doctorate in theology. Now, I grew up with the repeated stories from my father of all of the friends who he had who studied with him, who studied the Bible so hard and, and sought to find out all of the different things about the Bible culminating in years of intense study, doctorates, assistant professorships, professorships, chairs. I know, they give you chairs when to sit on when you get old. Now, the, o the repeated refrain that I grew up with was, this is all well and good to study the Bible, but don't lose your faith as part of it. Because a lot of them started treating the Bible as just an academic exercise, started treating their faith as something that it can just be analysed, not as a faith to be had. So I, I went, oh, they're, okay, they're, that's how they're setting up an idol. So you probably know this about me. I'm a doctoral student in theology. What do I do 
when I'm confronted with that idol? Well, I run a million miles in the opposite direction. But what happens then? Well, for me, I realised a couple of years ago that the academic study of the Bible, for faith reasons, was becoming my idol. I was setting up just a new idol, just in, in contrast to the one that I'd been challenged with all my life. I'll come back to that a bit later. So I've already said the identification is easy. It's really easy to see how people set up idols. But challenging idols, on the other hand, I think comes in two stages. Those two stages, I think, are confrontation and resolution, which we'll turn to now. So first of all, those three Hebrews, those poor guys standing on the plane, presumably shaking in their boots as everyone else bows down and hits the floor. Oh, hello, Caleb. They, they're the ones who are getting thrown in the deep end. They're the ones who are getting, uh, putting their butts on the line, mo most literally. But what happens with, with Neb? Well, the music plays, and then as soon as, as, soon as they hear the sound of the music, all the nations and peoples of every language fall down and worship the image of gold. That's kind of good. You know, Neb sitting there on his throne, presumably w watching this entire affair, sitting back and going, ah, oh, that's the best. At least everyone is worshipping the idol I've set up. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. Just sit back. But then someone comes to him with some disturbing news. One of the astrologers, those people back in, two, in chapter 2 who are about to be killed by Neb, you'd think they'd be a bit more grateful than this, but anyway, come forward and denounce the Jews. They said to King Neb, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that when everyone who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But... There's these three guys who are standing on the plane over there. They're not worshipping. So what does King Neb do? Well, predictably enough, he hauls them before him and he gives them an immediate second chance. Hold on. In verse 6, King Neb's decree was that whoever doesn't do this is going to be immediately thrown into the furnace. But now he gives them an immediate second, second chance. And a bit, a bit later on, he makes a second demand. If you do not worship this uh, idol, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He thinks his demands are reasonable. When he's confronted, he feels that he's in the right. And I think that's what we do as well. We try and justify our idols. My idol is a good thing. How can, it, how can you come you, you're telling me that what, what I'm doing is bad? How can, how can you tell me that what, what I am worshipping is unsustainable? How can you tell me that just my own desires are not godly, are not righteous? We try and justify our idols. Hint here, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work just as much for us as it doesn't work for Neb standing there on that plane. The three 
We've read it already in the text. The three stand up to, to Neb and say, we're not going to worship your idol. What's his response? Well, he is furious with rage. I often like the, uh, in the Hebrew, it, re- it says things over and over again to re-emphasize it. He is red hot and furious with fury. Just in case you're wondering what was going on here. What? It re- and it repeats it a couple of times. He's furious with rage. He is even more furious later on. I think that's the same for us. What makes us angry when we're challenged? It's probably a good indicator that there's an idol somewhere back there. Neb's response, you will do it. Bow down to my idol. Internally, he's probably saying, how dare they stand up to me? I don't care which god you worship. You're going to bow down. Hint, they don't. His rage is white hot, just like the fire which is burning off in the corner. And so when they don't bow down, what does he do? Well, he's even more furious in verse 19. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual. And then he commands some of the strongest men in his army to tie them up even, even more well, even stronger, and throw them into the blazing furnace. Does this seem a little bit excessive to you? Seven times hotter? So hot that it's going to kill the men who throw, it, throw them in? Plus he's throwing them into a furnace in all their clothes. Clothes, you know, pretty much universally are flammable if you get them hot enough. You're throwing men into a furnace that they're going to burn. Why is, why is he going to the, all this extreme of hot, heating up seven times hotter? Well, I trust that that's just a reflection of his heart. He was furious enough when they didn't worship. When they stood up to him and pointed out his idolatry, well, he's like that road rager who goes from calm, collected, good driver behind the wheel to completely apoplectic and finger out the window in one single beep. They're going to burn. It's the real question here is how hot is Neb's anger going to burn? Is it going to burn away the idol of his heart? So then how do we know? How do we know that we're being confronted in our idols? Well, I trust that when we get angry, when we're challenged in our idols, we get angry, we get bitter, we get resentful. Those little sta- icy stabs at our heart which go so deep and you, g- you can't figure out where they're coming from. They're the things that indicate what our idols are. What goes along with that? Well, the thing that goes along with that is sacrifice. What are the things that we then throw into our furnaces in order to maintain our idols? I'll continue that example from earlier. With my position as a Christian academic, you know, I'm seeking to do good things with academia, to build up people in their faith. But what happens when I get rejected? When the inevitable comes, as it, has, uh, as it does so often in academia, you've, sent, you've slaved away uh, on your journal article, you've presented the, the, the core of it at a, at a conference, and you've got 
know, reasonable acclaim. People haven't thrown you out of the room. You, you spend a whole bunch of time writing it up, polishing it up, and you send it off to the journals. You sit then, you, you then sit back, twiddle your thumbs and wait. A month goes by. Two months go by. Then the email comes in. Pops up on your phone and you go, oh, I know who that is. That's the journal editor. Let's see what they've got to say about my article. You can't read much of it on your tiny little um, preview on your phone, so you flick it, unlock your phone, flick the email open. Dear Chris, we thank you for your journal submission and we are greatly delighted that you have chosen our journal to, to submit it to. However, upon consideration, we think that your, your article may benefit from another journal or some rewriting, or we don't think that, that your, your arguments hold up, or we think it's a load of bollocks. Icy stabs in the heart. It's difficult. It's hard. But I trust, for me, that's one of the ways that I make sure that I'm not worshipping academia as an idol, that I'm not worshipping the status the acclaim, the good name as an idol. It reminds me that, there's a, that, that it sits at the back of my heart somewhere. From, uh, I was reminded the other day, courtesy of Facebook on this day uh, updates, that there is a more extreme version of this. A friend of mine or I should say a past colleague, uh, let's distance myself a little bit from him, <laughs> uh, was passed over for a job. He'd, he was probably actually reasonably the, the best qualified uh, in the division for this, for this role. He'd applied for it. He'd been selected to the short list. He'd been interviewed. He'd been selected to the even shorter list. He'd been interviewed again. He was down to two. He didn't get it. This was September. Fast forward a couple of months. We're out for lunch, for Christmas lunch. He's had a couple of drinks. The new guy has started. He's having a chat with a new guy and the head of the uh, employment uh, panel who was arbitrating or deciding on who to employ for that role. I wasn't there, but I heard what happened from across the room. There was a break of glass as he broke his glass over the head of the employment panel's head. The anger, the rage that was screaming across that room. How dare you pass me over for that role? I was the most qualified one. I wonder if that was an idol. Hmm. So then what happens for the Neb and the Three? This is more the idle resolution side of things. How, how are we challenged in our hearts? The Three get thrown into the fire. The strapping young lads who have strapped them up get burnt to a crisp. They're dead. Neb set up his idol 
and deals with those who disagree. Sits back on his throne. Ah, so good. There's no one challenging me about my idols anymore. I can do what I did before. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. But then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisor, weren't there three men that we threw into the fire? What the heck's happening here? I said, uh, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbounded and unharmed. What? It's like in the, in the cartoons that, that, you know, the eyes are popping out of their heads. They're on stalks four metres away from his face. I can't believe it. There's four people walking around in this fire. The ultimate challenge to his idol has arrived. Not only are these three men not dead and having a gander around in this fire, toasty, but you know, presumably on a cold day like this it be, might be rather pleasant, but there's a fourth one in there with him. So Neb drags him out of the fire. Get out here, get out here. Tell me what, what's going on. What's happening? You three, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they come out of the fire. And all of the people crowd around them and they saw that the fire had not hurt them at all. There's no smoke, there's no singe. What's gone on? Neb seems to know a, bit, a little bit of what's gone on. He says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. So Neb here gets a partial view of one walking in the fire who looks like the son of God. I trust, actually, for us living a few hundred years after that event, well, living a few hundred years after the event that, um, that defined that, that we know that that is, that is likely to be Christ walking around in that fire. He only gets a partial view of this one who looks like the son or sons of the gods and so declares what he says in verse 28. But then he does the same thing as what he did earlier. What does he do at the end of chapter 2? Well, he's challenged in his idol of himself as supreme ruler. So he worships men, Daniel, and he sets up a new idol. What does he do here? He's challenged in his idol that he set up on the plain. He worships men. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, I decree that Anyone who says anything against them will be cut into pieces, turned into rubble. But what will I do as the outcome? I will promote the three in the province of Babylon. He seems to be getting it a little bit. But as we'll see in the next chapter, there's still the no that's coming at the end of that. The yes, 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 no. We're still firmly in no territory. It's just natural. He's doing the Nokia snake thing. He's got to the, to the end of that screen and he bites his own tail. Nope, still not there yet. How can this be changed? 
how do we get out of this seemingly endless cycle of biting our own tails? Well, I trust it's that the way out is through that fourth person in the fire. Christ is the ultimate challenge to our idols. Without him, when we're confronted, we'll just go on and set up a new idol. The imagery of, of that child and their toy is actually from an old poem. And it imagines what, the, 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 what would happen if the toy came to life. Uh, Arthur St. John Adcock writes, Leave us with our toys, hap then happier we shall stay, while they remain but toys, and we can play with them and do with them as suits us best. Reality would add to our unrest. Why would reality to add to our unrest? Well, it's because we want no living Christ, whose truth intense pretends to no belief in our pretense. We want no more of him than is displayed in the dead plaything our hands have made. We would much prefer the one who's walking around in the fire to stay walking around in that fire 2,500 years ago. The problem is that the toy that we think is dead is really alive. We see that in the temple in John. The one who is walking around that fire walks around in Galilee walks into the temple, fashions a whip out of cords, challenges the idols of his age, cracks that whip in the temple, turns over the tables and says, my father's house should be a house of prayer. But he doesn't just stop there. He continues on, walking around Galilee, walking to Jerusalem, walking up the hill of Calvary to the cross, dying. That'd be really nice if he stayed there, I think a lot of us would say, in our idol-stricken state. But he doesn't stay there. He rises again. He rises not just from the grave, but on high to his throne in heaven and continues to walk with us in the spirit. that idle plaything, the little toy that we prefer to stay a toy, isn't anymore. It's alive. It's a beautiful, and it should be a beautiful thing for us, just as it was for the three in that fire. Especially because this vision of the risen and ascended Christ is so much more beautiful than our er earthly idols. The repentance that we do in setting aside one idol can only be counted by setting up something better than a new idol in our hearts, by faith in one who is much more than an idol, in that fourth person walking around the fire, in Christ. We need to set him up as the one who we worship, not just our limited ideas of him, not just another idol who we can keep in a box and put into the corner at the end of the day. Putting Christ as Lord in our hearts, in our minds, liberates us, frees us from the cycle of worshipping our own designs. We stop being that snake eating its own tail. This came to a head for me uh, about 12 months ago, just in a different way. I thought I'd dealt with a few different idols in terms of acceptance and uh, wanting to be 
respected by other people. And Caleb was running around in our little two-bedroom flat, completely ignoring everything that I was saying, as a two-and-a-half-year-old is wont to do. And I was felt myself getting more and more angry. Come on, my little man. Just stop running around. Stop doing what I'm not telling you not to do. Dude, listen to me. It was one of those times when I suddenly realized that I was deriving a whole bunch of my need for approval, my desires for my idol structure from a two and a half year old, fickle as they are. Whereas in Christ, in the one who is ascended on high, as uh, Jesus prays in, the, in John 17, we have approval in him. He is the one whom, who gives us our approval, our sense of belonging, our integration. Have I fully dealt with that? I trust I've dealt with it a bit. At some point, I'm probably going to be challenged again as it crops up again. But as Campbell said yesterday morning about his PT, practice doesn't make perfect. Well, not this side of heaven anyway. Practice just makes it permanent. Perfection will come when we get to heaven. Now, how this looks for each of us, I trust, is different. My idols are very unlikely to be the same idols that you have, unless we're carbon copy clones of each other, which I trust we're not. I can't tell you how to resolve those idols in your heart. How they work will be different, how they play themselves out will, will change. But I trust, though, that the mechanism for identifying them, for challenging them, and ultimately for resolving them in Christ is the same. We'll each find the different things that stab icily into our hearts, that want us to put our idol back in the corner or create a new one, put God back in, its, in his box. How we resolve them is something for you. And one of the best things about the way that we do church here at In the West is it's not just for you, but we gather together in smaller groups to be able to help out each other with them. But I trust it's the same for all of us. And so let me leave us with that poem. The poem from St. Arthur St. John Adcock. Because I think this tells us a lot about how we work. A blithe infant lapped in careless joy. Sports with a wooden, woolen lion. If the toy should come to life, the child so direly crossed, face with the, this actuality were lost. Leave us with our toys then, and happier we shall stay while they remain but toys. And we can play with them and do with them as suits us best. For reality, reality would add to our unrest. We want no living Christ whose truth intense pretends to no belief in our pretense and flashing on all folly and deceit would blast our world to ashes at our feet. We want no more of him than, in, than is displayed in the dead plaything our hands have made to lull our fears and comfort us in loss. What we want is a wooden Christ upon 
a wooden cross. Is that all we really want? Or do we want something more than just a wooden Christ?